Trinity Baptist Church, a community growing in faith, obedience, and joy. Advent is a Latin word that means coming. Advent is partly a time of joy in expectation of the Savior's birth and partly a season of pendants in expectation of the judgment on the last day. of Christ points to his past coming in Bethlehem, his future coming at the end of time, and his present coming through, the, through grace in the hearts of men. In Luke 1, 26 to 33, Luke writes, In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Greetings. You who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. As you light the second Advent candle, let us remember to wait expectantly for the Lord. The second Sunday of Advent, in Advent is the Sunday of Peace. We light the Bethlehem candle to symbolize the preparations being made to receive and to cradle the Christ child. The second candle reminds us of the dark night when Mary and Joseph found light and warmth in the stable in Bethlehem. How many of you have ever received a birth announcement? Yeah, I mean, most of us have, have gotten several over the course of time because people that we know are having a child and so they want us to know about it. And usually birth announcements are just kind of nuts and bolts kind of things, right? I mean, it's, you know, uh, James and Elizabeth Leonard are proud to announce the birth of their daughter, Eva Joy, born on October the 11th, 2013, weighing in at a whopping seven pounds, six ounces or whatever she was, two ounces, um, and um, mother and baby are doing fine. 21 and a half inches long. That's usually what the birth announcements say, right? I mean, it's kind of just here's, here's the nuts and bolts. But how many of you know Dave and Sarah Page? Dave's one of our elders, and Sarah's one of our deacons. And um, in May, when Jackson Joseph was born, I got a birth announcement from them that was different. Um, so I wrote it down. It was said, um, we, Dave and Sarah Page, are filled with joy, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and his diaper bag will be on our shoulders. And his name will be called Chief Litigator. Senior partner, Supreme Court Justice, President of the United States. <laughs> Sarah's saying, we didn't do that. No, they didn't send that birth announcement out. But what if they had? I mean, if, if you got a birth announcement like that that didn't just give you the, the particulars, you'd be thinking that the parents were a little nuts. And what if they not only sent that announcement, but they did it before the child was actually born? 
like, say, five or six hundred years before the child was born. See, that's what God did through the prophet Isaiah. God announced the birth of his son, um, not with the particulars of weight and length, but with the essence of his person, who this child would be. I don't know if you realize it, but the major theme of the Bible is the glory of God. And the, the chief way that, that that theme is communicated is through the incarnation, that, that God became uh, a man in the person of Jesus who gave his life um, to, to save, to redeem humanity. And, and that's the chief way his glory is communicated, that, that this God-man came to earth to give his life, to redeem us, and that God will be glorified through that redemption. And when you read through the Bible, that, that's the theme of the whole Bible. In the Old Testament, you see the anticipation of this one who would come. In the Gospels, you see the manifestation of the one who has come. In the, the book of Acts, you see the proclamation of he who came. And in, in the epistles, you, you get the explanation of the one who came. And in Revelation, you get the consummation, the story of him when he comes back and he establishes reign and rule forever and ever. And the glory of God is revealed in all of that, chiefly in, in the salvation of humanity as God has given of himself to redeem us. When you read through the Old Testament and you read of the anticipation of this one who would come, this one who will be the light of the world, he's called a number of names, and they all have connotations. In the book of Zechariah, he is called the stone, referring to to this one who would come as the foundation. Zechariah also calls him the peg, and I love that one because he's the one that we can hang our valuables on. He's the one that we can ultimately trust. Zechariah also calls him um, the, the bow, meaning that he will enact judgment. Micah calls him the shepherd king, referring to this, this king who would lay down his life for his sheep. Isaiah calls him Emmanuel, God with us. But there are no names for this one who would come which are more well known to us than the names that we see in Isaiah 9, 6 the birth announcement of the Savior. In Handel's oratorio, the Messiah, we sing that his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now you know why I don't sing in the choir. Uh, we need to understand that those are more than just names. Those are, they're his resume. They're the characteristics of the Savior that are essential to our faith. So on this second Sunday of Advent, as we are going through this series, looking at the one who is the light of the world, what I'd like for us to consider this morning, what I'd like for us to be reminded of this morning, 
is the glory of God in the incarnation and of his incredible grace extended through us through this babe born in a manger. Isaiah 9 verse 6 begins, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Now whether we realize it or not, that one phrase that introduces these names of Jesus, of Messiah, that one phrase points to the dual nature of Jesus. That, that Jesus is both God and man. You see, Jesus was not born as a son. Jesus has existed eternally as a son. He was given as a son. He was not born as a son. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, the Word was God. He already existed. In Hebrews chapter 1, the author tells us that Jesus is the Son through whom God made the universe. Colossians 1 tells us the same thing. Uh, Paul writes, All things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He's talking about Jesus. You see, Jesus has always existed as a son and as a son, he was given. But Jesus was also born as a child by which the Son of God took on human nature. Paul told the Philippians, in Philippians chapter 2, he said that Jesus being in very nature God did not consider, Jesus being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. In other words, Jesus was born. This one little phrase in Isaiah teaches us that the second person of the Godhead became a man and prophetically it announces the fact that Jesus is both human and divine. Fully human and fully divine. And that leads us, that's kind of the the preamble to these four names that God gives us through the prophet Isaiah. And and the essence of our faith is contained in these names. And and these names are the reason why we can have joy at Christmas time. The first name Isaiah gives us, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, I hope this doesn't ruin Handel's oratorio for you, but it's not Wonderful Counselor. It's not two. It's one. He is Wonderful counselor. And we know that because of the parallelism of the verse. There, there are four names here, and they're all um, two-word names in the Hebrew. But what's important is, what does it mean to us that he is wonderful counselor? The Hebrew word counselor is the word yoetz. And it means someone who gives counsel or who is an advocate. If you go to court... You don't go by yourself, right? You hire a a lawyer. 
you hire a counselor. Why? Because you're afraid to stand before the judge alone. Because you don't know the law like your counselor does. You don't know um, how you've broken the law like your counselor does. And you're hoping your counselor can advocate before the judge and get you out of the mess that you're in. Right? God says through Isaiah that this child who is born, this son who is given, is going to be a counselor for us. But not just any old counselor. He's going to be a wonderful counselor. Now, we, we throw around that word. We use that word wonderful often. In fact, this morning when I got to church, I bumped into somebody who had been here last night for the concert, and they said, wasn't that concert wonderful? Yeah, it was, in the sense that we use the word wonderful. But the Hebrew word translated here wonderful is the word pele, and it means astounding, um, um, incomprehensible, beyond human ability. It is, it is something that goes beyond us. It's beyond human conception. Now, as wonderful as the, the concert was last night, it was not Pele. What is Pele is when something happens that's impossible. You might remember from Genesis 18 when, when the pre-incarnate God um, meets up with Abraham and he tells Abraham, hey, by this time next year, you're going to have a son. And Sarah is standing outside of the tent and she hears this conversation and Sarah starts laughing. And the reason Sarah's laughing is, is because Abraham's 99. And she's thinking, me and Abe having a boy? Yeah, I don't think so. Well, God hears her laughing, and so he comes and talks to her, and he says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything Pele for the Lord? Is there anything that's impossible? Is there anything that is, is so far beyond human capability that the Lord can't do? See, that's the kind of counselor we have. We have a counselor that is Pele. Nothing is too hard for him. He is wonderful. Now you may say, well, Keith, why do I need a counselor like that? And why do I need a wonderful counselor? Let me answer that question with a question. Don't you hate it when people do that? How many of you would like to stand before a holy God and argue your merits against his standard? Anybody? Yeah, I have people who get nervous coming into my office. My office. And I'm just a guy, a sinner saved by grace like all of us. But... Imagine having to stand before a holy God by yourself. Friends, I don't want to imagine that. I don't want to be before him alone. 
I need a counselor. I need an advocate who will stand with me and will advocate for me. And, and, and because he knows the standard better than I know the standard, and he knows how I have, um, how I have gone against the standard better than I know. And he knows exactly what it takes to get me out of this mess. You see, he is my wonderful counselor. And God knew from the very beginning that that's what we would need and that's what Messiah would be. So Jesus is our wonderful counselor. And because he is our wonderful counselor, he is able to impute righteousness to us that we cannot um, claim for ourselves. That leads to the next name. How can Jesus be our wonderful counselor? Well, the only way that he can do that is by also being mighty God. In the book of Job, Job lamented that he could not stand before the holy God on his own, that he needed an advocate, someone who could lay his hand on God and his hand on humanity at the same time. And the only way you can do that is for you to be mighty God too. And that's what Jesus is. Jesus is mighty God. He is able to lay his hand on divinity and his hand on humanity at the same time. As I mentioned a few moments ago, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. But then a few verses later in verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. Friends, when you read through the Gospels, you see that Jesus is not just fully human, but he is fully divine. Because you see his power, you see his his power over disease, his power over nature, his power over circumstance. But what's more you see his power over sin and consequently his power over death. Because Jesus is mighty God, he is able to conquer sin and death. And what's so cool about that to me is that Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1 and he says that power, that resurrection power, God has also given that power to all who believe. You see, because he's mighty God, he's able to empower us to go through whatever trials, whatever troubles we might have. Jesus told his disciples in John 16, he said, in this world you will have what? Trouble. You're going to have trouble. Count on it. But then he said, take heart. Because I've overcome the world. Friends, you're going to have trouble in this world. Marital trouble, financial trouble, physical trouble, emotional trouble. You name the trouble, you're going to have it. But because of our mighty God, we can take heart. Because just as he has overcome the world, just because he has overcome sin and death, 
Just as he has done that, he's given us the power to do the same. Because he is our wonderful counselor, we have righteousness. Because he is our mighty God, we have power. And that brings us to the next name, Everlasting Father. Now you're saying, wait a minute, Keith, I thought you said he was the son. He is the son. But he's also Everlasting Father. In in the Hebrew mind... In the largest sense of the term, father meant the progenitor of the family. Who was the father of of the Jewish nation? Abraham. Abraham was the father of the nation. But wasn't Abraham also a son? Who was Abraham's father? Ah, caught you on that one. Terah. Terah, however you say that. T-E-R-A-H. Terah. Yes, Abraham was the son of Terah, but he is the father of the Jewish nation. Why? Because he is the progenitor of, of the nation. And in the same way, Jesus is the everlasting father of the family of God. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, because he died unto the wrath of God, to meet the holy standard of God and anyone who puts their faith in him and receives that gift of life from him is ushered into the family of God. Jesus is then the everlasting father. He's the progenitor of, of, of God's family. Ephesians 2 says, those who were far away have been brought near because of Jesus, because of what he did on the cross. Um, Hebrews chapter 2 says that by his death, he brought many sons to glory. You see, through what Jesus did on the cross, he reconciled us. And we couldn't be reconciled on our own. He reconciled us to the Father and brought us into the family of God. And in that way, he is the everlasting Father. And finally, if he's wonderful counselor, able to advocate for us in impossible circumstance because he is mighty God, and if he is mighty God, able to give us power in this life because of his ministry of reconciliation as everlasting father, And if he is everlasting father who has reconciled us into the family of God, then it also follows that he would have to be prince of peace. You see, there can only be peace after there's reconciliation. You can't have peace without reconciliation. God does not bring peace at the cost of righteousness. Righteousness must come first. Chiefly, the the righteous meeting on our behalf of the just demands of a holy God. Before there can be true peace, there must be righteousness. 
Friends, there's a lot of stuff going on in our world right now that that speaks to well that's tumultuous that is that is the antithesis of peace and do you know why it's we don't have peace around our world because there's no righteousness you see we want we want peace but we don't want righteousness we want our sin but we don't want to be troubled with the consequences we want to go our own way and assume that everything will turn out just fine but when it doesn't we get upset and we say why is God allowing this we blame it on him but you know what he came to bring peace The problem is not him. The problem is us. The problem is our sin. The problem is we haven't dealt with what we need to deal with and bring it to him, to our prince of peace. See, God says you've got to have righteousness first. But the root problem is sin, and sin has to be dealt with. We want peace with God, peace within, peace with each other, But that's not going to happen until there's righteousness. So how do you deal with sin? Well, you don't do it on your own. In Romans 3, quoting a psalm of David, the apostle Paul said, There is none who are righteous, no, not one. He told the Ephesians that righteousness could not be earned through good works. So how do you attain it? How do you attain righteousness? If we can't earn it, Well, as humanity knows instinctively, just before, nobody wanted to raise their hand and say, I'll stand before God. We know instinctively that we can't do that. We know instinctively that we need a counselor. We need a wonderful counselor who can do the impossible. We need one who can advocate for us, who can approach God because he is mighty God himself. We need one who can bring us into family and that into that family, reconciling us to God because he is everlasting father. And because he's able to do those things, he is thus the Prince of Peace. When the Apostle Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, I don't know if he had this birth announcement in mind, but he certainly understood its importance. That's why he could write in Romans 8, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. He's the everlasting Father. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus, who died. More than that, who was raised to life. Who sits at the right hand of God and is what? Interceding for us. He is our wonderful counselor. He says, so who shall separate us from the love of God? Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? No. For I am convinced 
that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither height nor depth, neither anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, he is our mighty God. Nothing can stand in his way. And because he is, then we can be assured of righteousness. And because of righteousness, we can have peace. He is our Prince of Peace. There was a birth announcement. And it may have taken six centuries. But as Paul said to the Galatians, when the time was right, God took a monarch of this world. Caesar Augustus. And he said, hey, I want a decree out of you. I need you to take a census. And because Joseph was Davidic, he had to go back to Bethlehem. And it was in that little place that our wonderful counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, was born. And I say this with all theological correctness. When he was born, all hell broke loose. Because from that time on, Satan did everything he could to keep Jesus off of the cross. Herod said, let's kill him. These wise men from the east came, which we're going to talk about next week. And they said, he's the king. The shepherd, the angels sang that he is the incarnate deity. The shepherds declared him as Messiah. Satan did all he could to keep Jesus off the cross. And in fact, As Jesus was hanging there, the very last thing that he heard before he died was, if you are the Son of God, take yourself down. But he didn't. Because Jesus knew that his salvation would mean our condemnation. Friends, if he was going to be the wonderful counselor... He had to die so that he could sympathize with our experience and give us help in time of need. If he was going to be mighty God, he had to die so that he could conquer all of our enemies and give us power to do the same. If he was going to be everlasting father, he had to die because only in his death could he bring many sons to glory. And if he was going to be prince of peace, he had to die. Because without paying for our sin, there would be no righteousness. And without righteousness, there can be no peace. Do you see what the birth announcement was? It was also a death sentence. To be the things that he was announced to be, he had to die. And because he did, he provides us with what we cannot provide for ourselves. Righteousness. Power belonging, and peace. Friends, that's the essence of our faith.
Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. My prayer for us this season is that as we embrace the child, we would also embrace the son. For only when we recognize him as both God and man can we experience the salvation that comes from our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let me pray for us. Lord, it amazes me that six centuries before you came, you would be announced in in a way that gave detail to who you would be. Lord Jesus, I pray that in this season... As, as James talked about last week, that we, we'd get lost in sometimes because of the secularization, because of wanting to buy the gift or wear the clothes or go to the parties or all that goes into this season. Lord, help us not lose sight of you. Help us recognize, Lord, what you did to give us life that you stepped out of the throne room of heaven into a manger so that you could live in obscurity for 30 years. You could have public ministry for three at the end of which you knew you would be killed. And you did it for us. Lord, I can think of nothing more glorifying. So Lord, in this season, we we celebrate you. And as we come to the table this morning, Lord Jesus, I pray that we would recognize the, the price that you paid so that you could rightly wear those names. Jesus' name.